Welcome to this MOOC by the All Wells Faculty for Dental Care Professionals from Bangor University. Hello, um, I'm Paul Brocklehurst and this is a podcast for the Gerodontology MOOC. And in this podcast, we're going to be discussing about the epidemiology of oral diseases for older people. So I'll just introduce myself first and then I'll allow my guests to introduce themselves. So, um, as I said, my name is Paul Brocklehurst and I'm the director of the All Wales Faculty of Dental Care Professionals. I'm an honorary consultant in dental public health and I'm interested in role substitution, i.e. getting um, members um, of the dental team more fully utilised in how we deliver dentistry going forwards. Hello from me, I'm George Tsakos, I'm a professor in dental public health at University College London and also an honorary consultant in dental public health with NHS and Public Health England and uh, I have um, worked uh, on oral health and ageing issues for a number of years collaborating with Paul and with Jerry. Hello, uh, I'm Jerry McKenna. I'm a senior lecturer and consultant in restorative dentistry working in Queen's University, Belfast. Um, I have a particular interest in improving oral health care for older adults and I've been involved in uh, quite a bit of research into this particular area. And my current role, I also train uh, dental undergraduates and again with a particular focus on how they provide care for older patients. Hello, I'm Fiona Elwood. I'm a subject expert at Bangor University. I'm a registered dental nurse of 33 years and still working um, in clinically, although not as much as I was. My current role um, is involved with dental charities and working in education to uh, promote and progress dental nurses. My previous work has been around um, working with stakeholders, looking at vulnerable groups and delivering oral health care, and particularly with the older group. Great. So we're gathered here today to talk about um, the epidemiology um, of uh, oral diseases in older people. So let's unpack what we mean by that. So I want to be talking about five elements. Um, and the first one is, you know, when we talk about older people, you know, what what, what do we mean? What is an older person? So I think the, um, the definition of an older person uh, varies from what it means to us as researchers to older people themselves. Um, if you get into some of the definitions of older people, um, it does get quite surprising quite quickly. When we look at definitions by bodies like the World Health Organization, they classify anyone over the age of 55 years as an older person. Um, what we generally mean when we talk about older people in the context of care provision, in the context of research, we often use the arbitrary retirement age as something that we would use to cut off what an older person is. So quite often in the UK, uh, we would use uh, people aged over the age of 65 as people who we would describe as older people, but I think we also have to be very careful about how we describe older people and how people themselves uh, view themselves in the context of age. I think also that that's a very interesting question, and if one looks at it, how it has been changing over the last 20 years, it's actually telling. 
for example, we used to have, in epidemiology, in oral epidemiology, we used to have studies of older people being those 65 plus, as Jerry said, with an arbitrary threshold of retirement age, assuming that would be there forever, i.e. the threshold and the, reti- the, you know, the pension, and both are changing, as, as we know. And now it has moved quite a bit. Uh, if you look at the epidemiological studies of ageing, they start at middle age and older adults, so about 50 plus, and some studies in Eastern Europe at 45 years of age plus, which clearly is not old. Uh, it's probably middle-aged, but it's also more about understanding what happens biologically into the life course before you can become old. That's why the term old has been changed into older, which is uh, a more mild term, if you like. And I, I think it's, a, it's more what you feel about it, how everyone feels about it. I can give you only my personal experience on that. I have been doing work on the English longitudinal study of ageing and was approaching it as a researcher. Then comes a point where you realise that you might be eligible to be a participant as well. Well, that's exactly what I was going to sort of say, is we're moving from a definition where I'd certainly be sitting in that definition as an older person. That doesn't seem quite right to me. No. no. Well, it, it is what you feel. You know, you can get over it because you think, well, OK, it's for research purposes. It's not reality necessarily. But, but that idea sort of pushed the boundaries more into, am I able to undertake the things I want to and live... Uh, a life, um, you know, full of happiness and, and realise the opportunities that are there. And that doesn't have a specific age limit. But isn't there an issue there in terms of, um, if you like, collapsing those two things in terms of, of, of age, as in something that defines you chronologically, I am 65, an actual function? And I think what you're saying, George, there is that um, that's becoming increasingly more difficult it used to be a little bit more clear-cut, whereas now people are living a lot longer with a lot of function, they can do a lot of things. Equally, there's people who might be just going into 60 who might not be have that, having that ability to do the things that they once did. Yes, I think that's, for me, that's more, much more important rather than putting an arbitrary age threshold. Of course, we epidemiologists tend to like analysing populations into age groups, so we want to put people in groups because that helps our statistical analysis. But the reality at, at the N equals one level, at an individual level, is always uh, very different. And the crucial issue is about not whether you are old or not, whether you can have uh, an active and, and socially productive and happy ageing process in your life course, I think. Okay, have you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think really, really good points have been made. But one of the things that I would like to sort of touch back on is what is the difference between chronological and, and biological? I think it would be really useful... Um, to explain that for the dental nurses listening to this. Um, but also that I'd like to add before we answer that question is I think you, the life expectancy is, is true and that's what dental nurses tend to be faced with is the patient in the chair and how are they making the decisions? Is this patient an older person or um, are they just medically challenged? All of those things seem to give a, a title and we seem to frame and have our care around that. Yeah, I, th- I think the... Um sort of the points from from George and then also from Fiona, I think we have to acknowledge that whilst we do like to sort of classify older people into this sort of single group, there is huge amounts of variability, heterogeneity amongst this this group 
um, you know, the sort of classic phrase that age is just a number, I think is, is very, very relevant that, you know, if we have a, a group of people who are all aged 70 years of age, there will be varying different degrees of, as you said, um, biological issues, medical issues, all of these sorts of things. We do have to acknowledge that as people age, we do start to see more and more medical complications. Uh, we know that lots of uh, chronic diseases are more prevalent as people get older, and we do have to factor that into how we deliver oral care for these people. Um, but as I said, that th there is a huge amount of variability within that. We all can think of examples of very sprightly 70-year-old people who are very independent, who live in their own home, who have very few medical conditions. But of course, we have also got a cohort of older people who are residing in nursing homes, care homes, who have, who are certainly what we would describe as dependent people because they need to rely on other healthcare professionals, other services to, to help them with these sorts of things. So whilst it is nice for, for George, as he says, to you know, break people down into these groups for epidemiological, for research purposes. We as clinicians and people who are, are treating patients need to be aware that actually this is a very, very variable group and we need to look at people on an individual basis rather than as sort of taking broad brush strokes across all of them. I think that's really helpful, Jerry. So if we're moving on to our second point here, um, that we want to just um, talk around. So you mentioned there, Jerry, about um, differences in oral health and indeed in general health. So when we think about older people, however we want to try and define them, um, and we talked about those limitations um, just a moment ago, what types of dental disease are older people more likely to get? So I think if we if we sort of think about older people, what we may have in our sort of mind is a very sort of typical picture of an older person who has no remaining natural teeth and wears complete replacement dentures the whole time. And really what we're seeing through some of the work that George has been involved in is that that is a very much a changing picture of older adults. What we have certainly seen over the past 20, 30, even further uh, years back, is very much a changing picture of oral health amongst older people. Older people are retaining their own natural teeth for much longer. They are coming into that sort of old age bracket with many, if not all, of their own natural teeth, which is, which is great because this helps them to function, this helps them to uh, chew, to all of these sorts of things. But what this does bring with it as people get older, and as you said, Paul, people's medical conditions start to become an issue whereby people may have things like arthritis, which makes brushing their teeth that bit more challenging. It does then mean that they're very vulnerable to chronic dental diseases. And these are exactly the same dental diseases as younger people are, are prone to. We're talking mainly about dental caries. We're talking about periodontal disease. We're talking about tooth wear, where the teeth are wearing down and wearing away. Um, but this, I suppose the very unique disease that we see in older people is that as people get, as the term goes, get long in the tooth, whereby the gum uh, sort of moves away from the tooth surface and exposes the root surface, this is a population who are now very prone to a disease called root caries, which we don't see in other younger age groups. And, and what do we mean when we say root caries? What, 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 
what would we expect to see? Certainly, certainly from a dental nurse perspective, looking in someone's mouth, maybe say surgery side or wanting to undertake some say prevention, what would they be looking for? So root caries is essentially the same uh, decay process that happens on the crown or the top of the tooth happening on the root surface of the tooth. This can only happen where um, the root has become exposed into the mouth, where the gum has moved away from the, uh, from the crown of the tooth. And what we tend to see developing is that same decay process. It tends to be a darker, discoloured uh, lesion on a tooth. It tends to be very soft to probe. Um, it doesn't tend to give rise to pain for a patient, quite typically. Um, but certainly preventing this is something that we need to be very aware of. Um, this is done through obviously keeping that surface nice and clean, looking at supplementing some of the things that the patient is doing by perhaps adding fluoride varnishes, things like that to the surface. The other complicating factor that often accompanies this are that a lot of older patients would suffer from dry mouth, where some of the medications that they're taking tends to dry up the saliva in the mouth. Saliva is a tremendously uh, useful protective substance in someone's mouth, and when it's not there, unfortunately, Diseases like um, caries, root caries, periodontal disease, gum disease can all take hold very, very quickly. Uh, treating it tends to be quite a challenge for, uh, for clinicians. Uh, it tends to be very difficult to, to manage. Uh, and there are a variety of different ways to do that with some adhesive materials that we have available for that. And that's all correct and actually creates a picture of um, challenges, if you like, in, in terms of how you treat and manage an older patient, trying to give another perspective to it. If you look at it from what happens in the health needs of the population, if you look at the epidemiological picture, you have now a complete change, as Jerry said, and, and it's continuing to be so. I mean, we used to have a lot of older people being edentate, i.e. without any teeth, any natural teeth. And most of them, the vast majority, were, were indentures and, well, of various quality, but they were functioning with that. A very, very few now are identified. I think overall in the adults is about 1 in 16 or 1 in 17 in the UK, um, which means it's a measure of success. Everyone is celebrating that we have people keeping the natural teeth longer in the mouths. Now, that's uh, an epidemiological oral health transition, if you like. If you combine this with a demographic transition that people tend to live longer it means that we will have a big cohort of the current middle-aged population in the country living for many years ahead hopefully and with many many natural teeth in the mouths while before from a treatment perspective they were almost dentally dead, if you like. Uh, I'm using this term to say that they had no natural teeth, they had a denture, and they could, you know, have limited oral health needs. Now, this younger group that is coming forward to become older will have a lot of natural teeth, they will live for many years, and those natural teeth are heavily restored. They have big amalgam primarily restorations that gradually being restored, and teeth that are heavily restored. That's why they have been called, in a very nice term, the heavy metal generation. Um, I mean, it's because they have a lot of heavy metal in the mouth, but also through amalgam, but also because they were growing up when heavy metal was almost the, you know, compulsory listening. 
uh, in, in your part of your education into life. So that generation, in terms of the oral health needs of the whole population, will has the potential to create a massive challenge in terms of who deals with these needs, who pays for these needs, how are they covered, and because they are in essence essential through the role, as Jerry said, of oral health into better general health in ageing. So oral health is not just a commodity in that, it's a very essential part. So that's something to consider. So Fiona, in terms of the practical realities of seeing this type of levels of disease in older people, um, say certainly in a practice sort of setting, what, what kind of things will dental nurses sort of notice? Some of the real challenges around this is that it's not even in their current education to deal with this uh, group of patients. Um, and as George has said, you know, we've changed, the landscape's changed, the ageing uh, sort of population. We've also got implants, which we haven't touched on. It's probably another discussion to have. But this generation of people will have implants, so we need to teach uh, and work with the dental nurses in order to deliver good oral health messages and help patients look after their own mouths. Having said that, as they get older, they may not have the dexterity, so the nurses need to learn the different resources, the different aids that they can encourage patients to use. But the big thing here um, that we haven't really touched on as well is, is access to care. So if they can get to the practice, you can almost start to develop this kind of care plan. But if they can't get there and they're dependent on others, it's a real game changer. Who will deliver that care? So I'm going to be talking about access um, shortly, but just coming back to something you said, Fiona, in terms of, if you like, what um, dental nurses would see typically um, as people age and the types of disease that, um, that will accompany that ageing sort of process. What kind of things would they expect to maybe do differently in the dental practice or um, even, say, in the management of these kind of patients in terms of getting them in and out of the chair and those kind of things? There's a lot of work being done which wasn't around when I first started in dental nursing, but a lot around sort of the bariatric care as well, um, having to do lifting and handling properly, looking at how we get patients in and out of the chair, giving those patients time. Um, having different um, resources to hand. So if I, if I look at some of the particular toothpaste, and I don't want to go into brands and things, but some of them can't tolerate particular foaming agents and things, so we need to look at whether that's appropriate. We've also got the interactions with the potential medications that they're taking. The nurses need to have an understanding of what could be contraindicating with those things. Really plan and have almost this sort of group huddle to discuss these patients and do an integrated care plan that the nurses can carry through the messages that are fit for that one person and not have a one-hat-fits-all oral health message. Because in my experience, that is certainly seen in general medicine, um, the, 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 the bringing together groups of people to actually care for, as we've said, uh, increasing um, needs, but also very, very a lot of variation in the needs that mm. people sort of have. So... Um, I guess that is a real sort of challenge and what you're saying is there isn't the education out there to actually um, train nurses in this in this manner. No, not not at all. It's not something that uh, there are sort of papers coming out and things, but as, as the generations are coming through, there's more older people. There isn't a specific unit or any training for dental nurses on their own in gerodontology or care for the older person. Well, that certainly is, is food for thought and one of the reasons why we want to do these sort of series of, of podcasts looking at how we do manage um, the older person. 
I want to come back to this issue around sort of access to services. Um, one of the things we talked right at the very beginning um, of the podcast was around this difference between, if you like, dependence and independence, um, those that can or cannot access or care, and the pressures that places on, on services from a population level, but also very, very practical things like being able to um, see um, patients with varying degrees of disability. So what do we know, George, about sort of the research that has looked at the impact of ageing on access to services? Well, the, that falls under the broader remit of the research on health inequalities, um, which in essence, um, I mean, there's a lot of evidence in different age groups, including the ageing, to show that, to demonstrate that um, the higher you are in the social hierarchy, the easier it is for you to access services. The, also, the better health and oral health you have. It's what we it's termed the social gradient. It's almost like a ladder where uh, the lower you are in the social hierarchy, the more deprived you are, not just socioeconomically, but also health-wise. And that creates challenges and a, a lot of Food for thought, I would say, in terms of how services and how the broader public health community responds to that, um, because there, there's a more need in certain se sections of the population. Um, for ageing populations, and that's a sort of an extra degree of complexity, if you like, there is some literature, enough from national studies, also from a study in, in national study in England on older people, um, showing that there are these inequalities are more profound among the dentate older adults, so the older adults that have the natural teeth, but not equally so to the indentate, so those that have lost all the natural teeth. Now, if you think that five, ten minutes ago we were saying that the indentate are becoming a smaller and smaller group, uh, it means that that smaller and smaller group, once they lose all the natural teeth, probably tend to adapt to what uh, they can do and have a different life experience and perspective than those, the vast majority, that keep the natural teeth, that they are subject to large inequalities in oral health and access to services. So what you're saying then, George, um, to paraphrase you, is that the richer you are, um, the healthier you are, uh, the poorer you are, the more likely you're going to have disease, um, that as you age with teeth, um, there, that there's a real inequality there in terms of sort of access to sort of services, which you probably don't see quite so much um, with older people who have dentures. Yes, correct. And, and that doesn't take into account the, the discussion we had before about dependence and independence. So, if you move into the people that are in care home institutions, um, then um, they have clear issues about access to services because then the, the, the old type of care, which is the domiciliary type of care, which could have addressed some of the concerns, really doesn't happen uh, throughout the country, irrespective of whether the care home institution is funded by the public or you know, it's a state funded or private funded. So there is a group out there that is even more deprived and have an issue about access to services. So Jerry, from a Clinician's point of view, obviously, sort of, we talked about how these patterns are going to change quite dramatically over the next, well, 10, 20, 30 years. What, what kind of issues do you see in terms of older people accessing services going forward? Well, I mean, I'm in a, a very fortunate position in that I work in a, a dental hospital. 
So a dental hospital has is a purpose-built uh, building with um, sort of physical infrastructure that supports people who have difficulty in, in coming to see us. So we have lifts, we have ramps, we have all of these sorts of things. Um, what I'm very much aware of is that as older people um, get older and they have other perhaps um, physical impairments, they find it genuinely very difficult to access care. Um, we know that a lot of dental surgeries are in less than ideal settings. They may be up a sort of steep flight of stairs. They may be in an area which is very difficult for people to, to come along in a wheelchair, for example, and things like that. So this is, um, this is becoming a real issue um, for older patients. We know, again, that we have, as George mentioned, we have people who are in a care home setting as well. There was previously, and there is still facility for dentists and dental nurses and the wider dental team to go and provide care in a domiciliary setting where they come along and they um, bring their dental kit and they provide simple care in some of these facilities. But that has become more and more challenging over time. Um, whenever I first qualified as a dentist 15 years ago, I did go along to people's houses and provide things. I made dentures, things like that. But the sort of rules and regulations around that have changed quite markedly. People need to have special insurance in their car. There are lots of things that they need to consider. And therefore, you're seeing less and less of that happening today. So as George quite rightly says, there is a, a group of people who are essentially uh, either unable to access services and services seem at the minute very challenging to come to them. So it's, it's an increasing problem. So what you've got is effectively a time of increasing need and particularly going forwards, a lot more need and a lot more unfairness in that need yeah. in terms of a lot more poor people with that need. We've actually got a, a service which is probably increasingly and rapidly becoming uh, unfit for service. It's, it's, it comes back to the point that was made at the very beginning that, that the oral health needs of our older patients have changed very, very dramatically, but the dental service and the way that we provide our dental service has been very, very slow to catch up to this. Um, we still have a very traditional model where patients come to a dental surgery and they have treatment there, um, whereas we're entering an era where I think a lot of those things need to be fundamentally rethought to match the needs of this population. And Fiona, what sort of things from a dental nurse perspective would you add in there? I think there's quite a lot actually to, to sort of bring to the table on that one because um, oral health in, in its entirety is not an active dentistry. So we've had lots of conversations in the dental nursing groups and oral health groups that this is it's a care, it's not an active dentistry. So some of the teams are actually going into care homes to help and it's not even as straightforward as that. So some of the groups I've sat on, the, the care homes have said, it sometimes depends on the packages that have been bought by the relatives. So if they're, if they're not buying into oral care and oral care products, then they can't provide them. Their teams are not trained. So some of the dental nurses have got groups together and are going in and training the people who work in the tray homes because actually they're the people who are with them all the time. They're the people that see the changes. But because of the boundaries of training and the lack of support for dental nurses to pick up these projects and do that, and the lack of structure, really, of a programme to do that, it brings its own challenges. And then, of course, if you want to go into a high-fluoride toothpaste, we get into the realms of it having to be prescribed because it's a, it's a poem, it's a prescription-only medicine. So we might pick that up in a, in a later sort of podcast. Yeah. 
So we're, we're getting a picture here of increasing separation between the sort of the need and, and what the service can provide. But someone also mentioned, I think it was you, George, around the relationship between sort of oral health and quality of life. Um, so I just want to spend a couple of moments thinking about that. But before we start, I mean, what, what do we mean by this term quality of life? Is it, is it a pure research thing or is this something which actually has meaning for, for people on the ground and for those that are caring for the, 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 the uh, older people? The term, the term quality of life or in, in our sort of world they use an even more cumbersome one called oral health related quality of life. It, it, it means almost everything and anything. Um, so the term is not very helpful in my view and I've, I'm saying this having spent almost all my research career working on what I would call subjective measures of oral health rather than quality of life measures, but yeah. Um, what it means really, I, I think, is trying to cover an aspect that was completely neglected in the past. And dentistry and oral health has followed medicine in that with about 20 years of, of gap of difference. So we are late in, in that. We have been late. But unfortunately, we haven't learned from the mistakes the others made. We make the same mistakes again. We have our own process of learning about it. What it means, it really is subjective measures of oral health. It's how people perceive their oral health to be and how much or how often, depending what you ask, their oral health impacts on their daily life, affects their daily life, and they cannot carry out the things that they would normally do on a daily life. So... To give you a concrete example, do you have difficulty eating because of your oral health? Do you have difficulty speaking because of your oral health? Is your appearance affected and your social life affected because of your oral health? Things like that. Is your work affected because of your oral health? Those would go under the broad umbrella term of quality of life. So what you're talking, what you're making the link here is, is that if you like, the, the, the functional aspects of what your teeth are there for... Um, or not just functional, but other elements as well. So, you know, we're moving beyond just measuring um, holes in teeth and fillings in teeth, but we're then sort of looking at how um, the health of those teeth actually impacts on smiling, having a conversation, eating, um, uh, dignity, all those elements. Yes, clearly that. And, and in essence, it puts the outcome measures very close to the people that would use them. It's a it's more person-centered approach to oral health because it says, yes, the clinical measures are there, but they're primarily for the purpose of us communicating by ourselves and understanding the burden of disease, but not fully because, I mean, try to, for example, to speak to a policymaker and explain what it really means to have a certain number of teeth with decay and try instead of speaking with them and translate this into what it means in terms of sleepless nights because of toothaches or what it means in terms of uh, impaired smiling or difficulty eating. It, it brings the oral health picture closer to the person that has the issue. So it complements rather than substitutes the clinical measures. So you're kind of making it real, you know, yeah. you, you know this moving away from the focus that as... Um, as dental professionals might um, become maybe too focused on a, a, around, um, say, fillings and, 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 and gaps, etc. 
to actually the meaning of that of those for the patient. So it's very much from a patient's perspective is what you're saying. Yes, it is. And I wouldn't use the term patient, but I would use person. Well corrected, George. Thank you. So, Jerry, in terms of then the sort of, the sort of management that you see with your patients, I mean, how do you see that link between oral health and quality of life from a clinician's perspective? Well, I think um, what George has been talking about there sums up some of those links very nicely. Um, we still haven't quite got to the point where we're routinely using patient-centered outcomes and quality of life measures in terms of our day-to-day clinical practice. I think that is something that many of us sitting around the table here today would like to see us doing more of those sorts of things. Uh, But certainly what it does for us, it puts in perspective that what we are doing in terms of the work we do as clinicians can have very fundamental impacts on people's quality of life. It helps us to illustrate that the impact that poor oral health can have on overall quality of life, for example. Um, A lot of my work would be involved in replacing missing teeth for older people. And if we think about some of those sorts of of impacts, where we go about replacing missing teeth for people, that kind of impacts in terms of their chewing ability, impacts hopefully with perhaps some dietary counselling on their nutritional status, their overall health. And those are sorts of things where, where I would see on a daily basis where we're doing things that have very positive impacts on people's um, oral health-related quality of life. So Fiona, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, just going back to things like um, diet as well, because if you have got um, an older person who hasn't got good health and can't have a good diet because they can't eat, then that isn't going to help them um, be healthy. Some of them don't have choices either. So we, there's a presumption that they, have, they can make choices. Some may not have the capacity to make choices. And the nurses need to understand a lot more about nutrition, but also understand how they can work well with people potentially in care homes and look at diets that are given to these, these sort of people because they're not always in, in charge of everything they get. And I think what you mentioned makes absolute sense and it actually links with how oral health affects general health mm-hmm and the well-being and quality of life on those individuals. There's enough research now to show that oral health matters, of course, on its own, but it's having worse oral health at, at an ageing society, at, at that age group, at the older people, it also is very well connected with further down the line, worse cognitive performance, um, sort of and functional performance as well. So it, oral health is not just something you need to have just for your quality of life it also affects very much your general health so guess what you're saying then george is that um you know your teeth impact upon your oral health um generally um as you age um that relationship probably becomes even even more stronger um and equally this sort of bi-directional relationship between general health and oral health is general health can also impact upon oral health so there's a whole um, area here where suddenly you can go from relative health to some, some with a change of medication um, and maybe changing diet, you can suddenly um, get quite a lot of disease and a lot of problems. And then the impact of that for someone who might be also losing their ability to be independent. You are absolutely right, Paul. And, and I'm, I'm saying that one affects the other and vice versa, but also that oral health can act 
in essence, like the canary in the coal mine sometimes. So when you have very few teeth, as Fiona said, then you have issues about diet because your chewing ability goes down. You, your diet goes down. That is not just you cannot eat the foods you like. It also means that your cognitive performance is impaired further down the line. And there's research in England in the national study to show that 10 years down the line, people that were eaten tight had worse physical and cognitive functions. So to put it in, in, in real life terms, they couldn't recall so many words, so their memory was impaired. And also the, the, the grip strength was worse compared to those that had the natural teeth. So it puts oral health into a very important role in the whole context of ageing. And I think that's something all of our researchers have shown. I think, I think the, the, the context of nutrition is, is very, very important on this sort of aspect. We know that natural teeth are very important for the nutritional choices that people make. We know that in turn, that nutrition is very, very important for, as a preventative measure for a number of chronic systemic diseases. As people lose their own natural teeth, they tend to move away from foods that they find difficult to eat and chew. They tend to then move away from the things that are packed full of vitamins and minerals and nutrients like fresh fruits and vegetables, sources of protein. They tend to move to a diet that has much fewer of these essential elements. They also tend to be things that are generally um, prefabricated for the, for, for um, they tend to be ready meals essentially in some of these cases. They're sort of full of sugars and additives and all of these sorts of things. And you start to get into a vicious cycle very quickly whereby people losing their natural teeth for whatever reason um, start to go down this sort of downhill trajectory which impacts on food choices, nutrition, and then as George says, that impacts then further on other systemic diseases. So it shows just how important oral health and retention of natural teeth in particular are for older people. So we're drawing to the end of our podcast um, on the epidemiology of all diseases in older people. Um, we've talked about um, what we mean by older people um, and the difference between chronological, biological ageing, independence, dependence, etc. We've talked a bit about um, the types of disease that older people are more vulnerable to, um, their ability to access services or how that becomes more difficult, impact on quality of life and this bi-directional relationship between general health and oral health. So that just about concludes our discussion. So thank you for listening uh, to this podcast. And of course, thank you to my guests, Fiona, Jerry and George. If you're wanting to learn more about this MOOC on gerontology, then you may be interested in, in the podcast that we're doing around the Gwyn and Bith programme and others that accompany this sort of series. Also, keep up to date with us online. Our Twitter is at AWFDCP, standing for All Wales Faculty for Dental Care Professionals. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this MOOC podcast by the faculty from Bangor University. 